This morning we're going to be giving our attention to the book of Job, chapter 35. If you'd like to turn in your Bibles to Job 35, I'll be looking at the entire chapter 1 through 16. That's on page 441 of the ESV Pew Bibles. Job 35. Got just a couple more chapters of Elihu speeches until we get to God's response where the Lord answers Job. But for now, where you are in Elihu, let's go ahead and go to the Lord and pray together. Heavenly Father, as we approach your word in faith, we ask that you would accompany the reading and proclamation of your word with your blessing. We ask for the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit. Please give us eyes to see the true meaning of this passage and help apply this truth to our lives so that we can live and serve you. Father, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. John was a, a wealthy man who was used to getting things his way. He made demands on his family. He made demands on the employees that worked for him. For example, he, he would often, uh, overtime was supposed to be optional. He would often make it mandatory. He, he was just, just a demanding person. And he was at the, the tailor, and he was getting a new suit. It was a, a dark charcoal gray type suit. As he stood in front of the mirror, he was he was making adjustments, and, and he noticed that the, the buttons matched the suit, and he said, I want these buttons changed to black. Can you do that? And the tailor said, well, uh, it's, it's a gray suit, most people, and John cut him off, and he said, well, I'm not most people. Can you do it or not? And the tailor said, uh, yes, yes, sir, we can. And he kept looking over the suit, and he noticed the suit had a vest that came with it, and it was, the front was the same material as the rest of the suit, but the back was kind of a silky material, and it was a, a darker a gray. And he said, I want the liner on the vest changed to black. And the tailor said, well, we don't normally do that, sir. And he said, well, can you do it or not? He said, yeah, I, yes, yes, we can do that. And he went on. He made other demands. He wanted a pocket inside a pocket. He wanted... He wanted uh, custom stitching on the lapel that they don't normally do. And he, he got done with all these things, and, and the tailor said, yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir. And finally, he got all done, and John looked at his watch, and it was almost 5 o'clock, and he said, I'll, I'll pick it up tomorrow at 3 p.m. And the tailor almost laughed, and he said, sir, I, I can't have it done by then. And he said, you understand what I'm asking? He said, I, I, I'm paying for the suit. I, I, I give you a lot of business. I, I'm a wealthy man. And I, I bring all of my business here. The, the man said, sir, we have, this is the finest tailor in, in the city. Most of the people that come here are wealthy people. Most of them give us a lot of business. And they are waiting in the queue. And you're just going to have to take your place like them. And John said, I'm asking you to have it done by 3 p.m. And the tailor finally said, sir, I'm sorry, that's... That's an unreasonable demand. We can't do it. It's just an unreasonable demand. In chapter 35, Elihu tells Job that he has made some unreasonable demands on God. Elihu gives Job a wake-up call and reminds Job that God is not like us. 
God is not like us. God does not owe anyone anything. No one can place God in debt. God is also not in the business of answering prayers that are, are, are calls out to him that are, that are made without faith or without repentance from sin. So it's a wake-up call for Job, but it's a teachable moment for us. So this passage teaches us to expect the greater reward. And we'll talk about what that means. We're to, to expect the greater reward and to approach God in prayer with faith and with much confession and repentance. So let's go ahead and read the chapter, only 16 verses this morning, Job 35. And Elihu answered and said, Do you think this to be just? Do you say, It is my right before God that you ask, What advantage have I? How am I better off than I than if I had sinned? I will answer you and your friends with you. Look at the heavens and see, and behold the clouds which are higher than you. If you have sinned, what do you accomplish against him? And if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? If you are righteous, what do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness concerns a man like yourself, and your righteousness the son of man. Because of the multitude of oppressions, people cry out. They, they call for help because of the arm of the mighty. But none says, where is God my maker? who gives songs of the night, who teaches us more than the beasts of the earth and makes us wiser than the birds of the heavens. There they cry out, but he does not answer because of the pride of evil men. Surely God does not hear an empty cry, nor does the Almighty regard it. How much less when you say that you do not see him, that this, the case is before him, and you are waiting for him. And now because his anger does not punished, and he does not take note of transgression. Job opens his mouth in empty talk. He multiplies words without knowledge. Elihu continues in verses uh, 1 through 16. This is another address. It says, and Elihu answered and said. So this is alerting us to the fact that Elihu is continuing to speak. Job is not interrupting him or giving him a response and once again, Elihu is restating or, or re retelling what Job had said in order to respond to him fairly. Remember the last couple of times we've seen Elihu do that. Elihu has said, okay, Job, this is what you said. And then he responds to that. So he, he wants to treat Job respectfully. And Job, remember... To Job, the situation just doesn't seem fair. He, to the best of his ability, has lived righteously before God. He's, he's sought to live correctly. And God has sent the suffering upon him. And remember, Job thinks, that, that doesn't match what I know about God. That doesn't seem right to me. And so he asks the question, what advantage have I? How am I better off than I had sinned? That's, that's Elihu paraphrasing what Job had said. What advantage have I? How am I better off than if I had sinned? So what happens now is Elihu is going to give two points to respond to that. And both points are going to be talking about how God is not like us. So remember, in order to make sense of the Elihu passages, what we've done is we've taken the liberty to, to put it in an outline form. Roman number one is God is greater than man. And then underneath there, chapter 33, God is not silent. 
Chapter 34, God is not unjust. We looked at that last week. And then this week, God is not like us. This is capital letter C. But they all support the main theme of God is greater than man. So verse 4, he says, I will answer you and your friends with you. In other words, I'm talking to you, Job, but the rest of you three friends can listen in on what I have to say. First of all, this is point number one. Elihu directs Job to gaze up into the sky. Look at the heavens. Behold the clouds. Do you see the sky? Do you see the heavens? Do you see how uh, everything up there is, is moving around? And you don't have anything to do with what happens up there. In other words, Job, you, you can be as evil as you want, um, or you can be as righteous as you want, but that's not going to change what's happening above you. That's not going to affect the, the weather patterns. That's not going to change the clouds. So it is with God. That was a, a brief illustration, an object lesson for Job. So it is with God. Elihu is pointing to the transcendent nature of God. You cannot manipulate God or get what you want depending on your behavior. So verse 6, if you have sinned, what do you accomplish against him? And if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? The implied answer is nothing. Nothing. On the other hand, verse 7, if you are righteous, what do you give him? Or what does he receive from your hand? The correct answer is nothing. It doesn't matter. People can sin all they want. It will not change the way God acts. It will not alter his plans. Even if the whole world were to unite against God in a, in a common front and rebel against his uh, purposes, if there, were, if there were no believers at all on the earth, um, that's not going to change God's purposes. God is God. All that he has spoken will most certainly come to pass. Likewise, if, if everyone is acting righteously, that's still not going to change the eternal purposes of God. And also, God will not owe them anything. In Romans 11.36, in the context of Paul talking about how God's judgments are unsearchable and his ways are inscrutable, he says this, Romans 11.35, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? So we have the same idea here in Job 35.7 as Romans 11.35. Elihu's asking Job, he's saying, do you really believe that God owes you? Do you really believe that because of your righteous living, because you're a man who's, who turns from evil and fears God, that you've lived rightly before him, do you think God's obligated to, to pay you back? Do you think you, you, you've earned some kind of perks with God? God is not like us. Now, that is true with, with us, right? There were, there were two friends, and, and one friend was painting his house. And so he asked the, the other friend, he said, hey, I could really use your help. The more I look at this project, if you could come over Friday after work and just work till it gets dark, and then Saturday all day, I think we could knock it out in one weekend. And so the first friend said, you really want your house painted, don't you? Okay, I'll, I'll help. So he came over, and they, they worked at it, and they got it done. And then about a year and a half, two years later, the, the friend that, that helped with the house was ready to finish out his basement. So he, he contacted his friend and he said, hey, what are you doing this weekend? And the friend said, oh, not, not a whole lot. He said, well, good, because I'm finally ready to, to frame out and, and drywall some of my basement. Can you help me out? And the friend said, 
well, I don't know. And he began to kind of back away. He said, I was kind of thinking of just relaxing this weekend. And then the first friend said, hey, you owe me. Remember, about a year and a half ago, I helped you paint your house? Yeah, okay, all right, fine. I will come over and help you with your basement. That's how it works, right? That, that's how it should work. I mean, what, what, imagine how much of a friend would he be if he would have said, yeah, I know you helped me, but I'm not going to help you with your projects ever again. That, that wouldn't be right. We reciprocate. We go back and forth. Elihu is saying, God is not like us. There, there's nothing we can do for God. There, there, there's nothing we can, we can uh, um, work at or accomplish or, or live in such a way that God owes us. That's not how it works. So Elihu's first answer is a rebuke to Job, saying, you're asking the wrong question. In verse 3, he said, what advantage have I? And Elihu is saying, no, 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 no. no. That's not the right question. That's not how we approach God. We don't seek an advantage from God. We, we don't seek to somehow leverage God with, with our righteous living or with our obedience. We don't obey God because it's part of some kind of scheme to, to get what we want from Him. That's not how it works. Yes, we're supposed to live obediently before God. God deserves our continual worship. But he is not like us. God is greater than man. And then verse 8 is, is an address to talk about what Job's, and, and all of us by extension, what our righteousness or evil does impact. He says your righteousness, your wickedness, it impacts you. It impacts those around you. Uh, if we live rightly, that's going to make a big difference uh, as members of our household on the rest of the members of our household. It's going to make a difference in how we treat others. Yes, absolutely, no question about it. But that's not going to alter God's eternal decrees. And he certainly doesn't owe us because God is greater than man. So that's first of all. And secondly, now this is a second point, verse 9. Because of the multitude of oppressions, people cry out. They call for help because of the arm of the, all, excuse me, the, arm of the mighty. So Elihu begins his second point by pointing to the way things are in the world. And he says, look, there are bad people. And there are bad things that are going to happen. People get hurt, people suffer, and often when people are hurting enough or suffering enough, they cry out to God and call for help. The problem is, verse 10, is that they do not call out to God in faith. Verse 10 says, but none says, where is God my maker? And in order to unpack that phrase and understand what he's trying to say there, we can look to the rest of Scripture. For example, Jeremiah 2, 5-9 through 9, says this. This is within the context of the prophet Jeremiah bringing a word of, of judgment and, a, and an address from the Lord to the people in uh, Jerusalem. Jeremiah says, Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? They did not say, Where is the Lord? The priests did not say, where is the Lord? Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord. So I think we can understand what that means from the context. He's saying, these people did not seek me. As my people turned away in disobedience and rebellion, they did not ask, where is the Lord? In other words, they should have asked, 
where is the Lord? That's a phrase saying, they should have sought me. They should have turned to me. And they didn't. So now, we go back to Elihu, and so when he describes this general situation in the world where people are uh, suffering and, and being hurt, and they turn to God and they cry out, but they cry out without asking the question, where is God my maker? He's saying the same thing. He's saying that they're crying out to God because they're in a foxhole. They're, they're crying out to God because they're hurting, they're suffering. But they're not crying out in faith. They're not praying in faith. There's, there's no saving relationship there. They're just grasping at, at a line that they can, they can grab onto. They think God is there to help them out even when they have rejected him. They're seeking the power of God, but not a relationship with God. They're seeking the hand of God for him to do something, but they're not seeking the face of God. They're not seeking him for who he is. They want God to do something for them, but they don't serve God. And they have no intention of accepting his lordship over their lives. There's no faith. And the rest of 10 and 11 describes how God's people, image bearers in general, have been given more light than the animal kingdom. Where it it talks about we've been given more understanding than the animals. The existence of God and the law of God is written on our hearts so that none of us are, are, are without excuse. We know that God is. So we can't say, well, I didn't, I didn't know that I'm supposed to have a relationship with God. But as we know, people suppress the truth and then they, they don't seek the face of God in faith. And that's what verses 12 and 13 are saying. Look carefully, verse 12. They cry out, pray, but he does not answer because of the pride of evil men. Verse 13, Surely God does not hear an empty cry, nor does the Almighty regard it. So an empty cry, that's a prayer uttered without faith, without the relationship with with God. Without a humble heart posture that bows before Him. So, now here's the kicker in verse 14, and it's aimed at Job. How much less when you say, that you do not see him. That the case is before him and you're waiting for him. So Elihu says this is true about all humanity that doesn't have faith in God who cry out to him and, and pray. But Job, if that first part is true, what about you? Because you're crying out to God, you're asking him to bring relief. As you stand there tapping your foot expecting him to show up. You're, you're waiting on him to show up and defend himself and to answer you because you think he has acted unjustly. And do you think your prayers are going to be answered? Do you think he's going to deliver you from the suffering? That's not how it works, Job. Convicting. Verse 15, And now because... God is not showing up when you want him to because he's not silencing your three friends like you want him to. You've crossed the line. You've become impatient. And out of your mouth comes empty talk, words without knowledge. You've made the mistake of saying God has acted unjustly. So these are are two points that Elihu brings against Job. And he basically says, you are making unreasonable demands on God. 
If we had to summarize chapter 35, we could say Elihu takes up two points with Job to show him that God is not like us. The first point is that Job was wrong to think that God owed him or special treatment because of his righteous living. Elihu reminded Job that God does not owe anyone anything. And then the second point is that Job's prayers have been hindered by his prideful attitude that demanded God show up and defend himself. And until Job repents, he should not expect God to answer his prayers. That's what chapter 35 is about. Job was making unreasonable demands of God. I want it done by 3 p.m. tomorrow, God. No. Well, we still make unreasonable demands. Uh, We're going to take it in two points, just like the text took it in two points. Number one, expecting special treatment from God for living rightly is an unreasonable demand. Expecting special treatment from God for living rightly is an unreasonable demand. Job thought he was being shortchanged. Remember, for all all that he had done, and he he was living righteously before God, but he crossed the line when he now expected God to to give him these these special perks, special treatment because of that. I mean, uh, Job was thinking, at the very least, God, you should bring me relief from all this suffering. You shouldn't have brought it to begin with, but at, at this point, don't you owe me that? Um, No, he didn't. I want to read from Luke 17, 7 through 10. This is the teaching of Jesus. Will will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he had did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. God owes us nothing. We're, we're the servant. God owes us nothing. We're only doing our duty. When we walk in obedience, we serve Jesus Christ, when we serve his church, we're not placing God in our debt. Uh, we, should, we shouldn't be thinking like Job did in verse 3. What advantage have I? Or, or how, how's this going to help me out later? Now, if I do this for God, then I can ex- probably expect, you know, some perks. Some special treatment. That's not how it works. The Apostle Paul, I think we can all agree, did a lot for the church and for God, was stoned, endured multiple beatings, was shipwrecked, was literally chained in prison, and in the end, had his head chopped off. Does that sound like he received perks for being a faithful servant? Sounds like the opposite, actually. We don't serve God to gain some advantage over him or that we get special treatment or perks. Serving the king is its own reward. In fact, Jesus taught that we should avoid public recognition for our faithfulness and acts of righteousness. Uh, Once again, this is Matthew 6, 1 through 4. This is Jesus' teaching. Beware of practicing your righteousness before the people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward 
from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So four verses, reward is used three times. That's the Bible's way of saying, you know, flashing neon sign. Pay attention. We're talking about reward here in this passage. The question is, what kind of reward are we looking for? Are we looking for perks from, from God or praise from men? Or are we seeking the eternal reward that comes from the Father at the end? Do we want recognition and praise now, or do we want God, the Father's reward for eternity? That's what we mean when we, see, when we say seeking the greater reward or expecting the greater reward. It means we're not looking for uh, perks from God, and we're not looking for praise from that. We should be expecting the greater reward that comes from our Heavenly Father and lasts in eternity. Now, I'm not speaking about things like uh, motivational tools for children. Like when they memorize so many verses, we give them a sticker or a star. That's, that's fine. We understand all that. And I'm not talking about where, where it's appropriate to, to recognize people for service. You know, we, somebody served for 30 years and we have this you know, time where we, we bring them up front or something like that. that we understand all that. There's, there's a time for, for decency and decorum that, that just dictates that we, that we give some recognition to people. Not, not that. We're talking about perks from God or praise from men. Because Jesus teaches us, if you receive that, then you won't receive the reward from your Father. So which is it? Expect the greater reward. John 12, 26 says, If anyone serves me, Jesus, the Father will honor him. Guaranteed. It's there. It's waiting. The greater reward. But for now... Whenever and however we serve, we're only doing our duty. So that's number one. Number two, unreasonable demands, expecting our prayers to be heard or unhindered when we have unrepentant sin in our life is an unreasonable demand. Expecting our prayers to be heard before God when we have uh, unrepentant uh, sin in our life is an unreasonable demand. Now, in general, people usually don't want to hear that. In fact, this, this topic has come up several times over the course of my ministry. Does God hear the prayers of unbelievers? And, and, and the question, they, they want to hear the answer, well, of course. Yes, God hears everyone. Well, God hears everyone in the sense that he is aware of it. God knows all things. But the Bible teaches that God does not answer the prayers of that are made without faith. Empty cries. Empty cries. Prayers that are shouted out to God without relationship, without faith. But because I'm, I'm suffering, I'm, I'm having difficulty, I'm, I'm reaching out, I'm in a foxhole, I'm crying out to God. The Bible teaches that prayers of unbelievers are not heard. Here it is, we've heard, seen it in Job. Here it is in Proverbs 15. The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. Psalm 66, if I had cherished iniquity or sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly God has listened 
He has attended to the voice of my prayer. So when we see prayers being offered up to God by those who are not in Christ, God hears them in the sense that he is aware of them. But scripture says they are empty cries because they're not offered up in faith. Because they're they're offered up by people who have not come to the Father through faith in the Son. Surely God does not hear an empty cry, nor does the Almighty regard it. Which is tragic. So so all these prayers offered offered up by by those that are ensnared in, in false religions and false belief systems, they're empty cries. They're devoid of faith in Christ. So to expect God to answer those is, is an unreasonable demand on God. That's not how it works. There was a, a 12-year-old boy who had a paper out. This is back in the days when, you know, we got our news from the newspaper and not from the internet. And so he had a paper route, and it was up in a northern state, and in the wintertime it was difficult. In the summer he rode his bike, and he could, you know, just breeze through the route, and that was easy. But in the wintertime it was difficult. He couldn't bring his bike, and depending how deep the snow was, it was, it was really bad. And so one particular day when the snow was falling, he came to his dad and he said, Dad, would you drive, would you take me on my paper route? And so the dad said, sure. And so they got in the car, and the, and the dad just, you know, inched its way forward one house after another, and then his son would run up and deliver the paper. And they'd, they'd get through it a lot faster than if his son was out there trying to trudge through the snow. Now, he did that because he was his son, right? You get that. But what if somebody from another town showed up and knocked on his door and said, hey, would you take me on my paper route? The, the, the father would probably rightly say, I I don't know you. Um, no, we're, we're kind of busy. And, and No, no. How much more so with God? When, when someone who has a relationship with the Father through faith in the Son shows up and says, Lord, and they, they offer up a prayer, God hears them because he is, is in relationship with them through faith in his Son. They, they have been united to Christ and therefore united to God by faith. But if somebody shows up that has, has rejected the Son or, or, or has remained indifferent towards the Son and has free offer of forgiveness of sins, they just say, no, that's not a big part of my life. And then they show up and ask the Father through prayer, that's an empty cry. I don't know you. I don't know you. You're not in faith through my Son, Jesus God does hear prayers uttered in faith. And even faith that is as small as a mustard seed. That's that's the teaching of Jesus. The smallest amount of faith uttered in prayer, God hears. But in order to have a relationship, we must come to the Father through the Son. John 14, 6, no one comes to the Father except through me. This is Jesus. No one comes to the Father except through me. I'm reminded of the the classic hymn, To God Be the Glory. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the earth hear his voice. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the people rejoice. Oh, come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give him the glory, great things he hath done. 
That's good theology. Oh, come to the Father through faith in the Son. If we want our prayers to be heard by God, we must come to God through faith in the Son, Jesus. So this is why we have the privilege and the joy of proclaiming the gospel on a regular basis. If, if you want your prayers answered, you must be united to the Father through faith in the Son. If you have not ever placed your faith in, in the Son, I implore you to do so. Repent of your sin. Turn, turn to God in faith. Say, I, I, I admit that I am a sinner. I, I admit that apart from faith, I cannot save myself. I turn to you in faith. I'm relying to you, Jesus. Relying on you alone, Jesus, for my salvation. Not on you and my good works. Not on you, plus the things I've done, but just on you alone. I, I bring nothing to the table. Please save me. And God will answer that prayer. Somebody says, yeah, okay, I get that, but what about believers? What about those that are, that are already in Christ? As believers, we want our prayers to be unhindered. Unhindered. There's a difference between unheard and unhindered. Our prayers, because we have faith in the Son, our prayers are heard. But they can be unhindered. Somebody says, really? Our prayers, our prayers can, be can be hindered before God? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. First uh, Peter 3, 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So this is teaching husbands, you need to live with your wife in a godly way. If you do not do that, your prayers will be hindered. Hindered. Sin hinders the effectiveness of our prayers. If we expect that our prayers are going to be unhindered when we have unrepentant, ongoing sin in our life, we're mistaken. That's not how it works. If someone is harboring a habitual sin, if they're feeding it, if they're not cutting it off, if they're not taking radical steps to, to mortify that, to kill their sin, if they're, if they're allowing it to take up residence in their life, and on the other hand, they're thinking, well, my prayers are, are going clean through. No, no hindering going on at all. Well, that's, that's not how it works. We should confess and repent any known sin. There was a... Uh, we had we, we ourselves had a, a dead animal under our deck uh, a couple of years ago when spring came around it must have crawled under there during the winter but in, when spring came around there was a smell and we couldn't figure out what it was and the smell got worse and worse and finally uh, it was almost unbearable now we had family over for, for Easter but it was not fun to be out on the deck. In fact, it, we, we felt it, it was very difficult to have a, an enjoyable time with this, this stench of this rotten animal underneath our deck. Of course, we eventually pulled the boards up and there was this gruesome-looking possum there. But the point is, if we expect our prayers to be unhindered when there's, when there's known sin in our life, it's not going to work. It's going to stink. And it's going to get worse and worse until we get it out of our life. Now, are we going to be able to pray to God? Yes. But it's not going to be an enjoyable experience. It's not going to be um, unhindered as long as that habitual, unforgiven, unrepentant sin 
is in our life. So if you have unrepentant sin in your life, get it out. Rip it out. Job is being shown that he was making unreasonable demands on God. He expected special treatment, perks from God, in exchange for his righteous living. And he was expecting his prayers to be answered, even though he had taken up this this, uh, stance of, of charging God with being unjust. And that was an unreasonable demand. Our takeaway from 35 is that God is not like us. He will not acquiesce to unreasonable demands. We are to serve God and expect a greater reward instead of perks from God or praise from men. Serving our King is our duty. We are, coming, we are to come to God through faith in Jesus Christ and our prayers will be answered. And we are to keep coming to Christ in repentance and belief and our prayers will be unhindered. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you that it reveals to us your truth and it reveals to us how to live and your work consistently shows us that we are to come to the Father through faith in Jesus the Son. Father, your word also teaches us that there is nothing we can do to place you in our debt. And and in fact that's the wrong attitude that we should even have. We should we should not be expecting special perks but like the Apostle Paul, only doing our duty. And certainly not seeking praise from men. Father, we ask that we would walk with you unhindered. We ask that that you would move us to a point of repenting of, of any unconfessed sin, coming clean before you, and then rejoicing in the powerful wave of the Holy Spirit as it washes over us as we deepen our relationship with you through faith. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.